Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 37 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. My place used to be called The Bunker, Angie called it that, and David and Angie had in their bedroom a sort of a sunken bit where the bed was, a bit like a boxing ring, so you could have an audience sitting around the side and watch what was going on. So they were kind of just wild times, people floating in and out. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Mick Ronson, Amanda Lear, Mott the Hoople, John Mellencamp, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie. I know that I was doing Waiting for the Man by the Velvet Underground before the album came out, <laughs> which uh, positively makes me the first person in the country. And I think I might even have beaten the American release as well because my then-manager brought back the demo of the album a test pressing from New York. He'd just been out to New York and put it, and I immediately loved it. I thought it was wonderful. I put Waiting for the Man in the band set, like, that night. In this episode, Main Man founder Tony DeFries continues to explain the very important relationship between David Bowie and Freddie Beretti, the designer who worked very closely with both David and Angela to design the early Ziggy Stardust outfits and some of David's street clothes. Here, DeFries recalls the period in early 1970 when he first met Freddie. 1970 was a very busy year for me. I was rescuing Marianne Faithful from serious, serious drug addiction and making a marvellous album with her. I was managing her at the same time. I was exploring the possibility with Stevie Wonder of how he might improve his situation with Motown when he turned 21. Stevie had a birthday on the 13th of May in 1970, at which point he was 20 years old. His friend who'd worked at Motown and someone who had written with him and recorded with him and was a co-writer on songs like Sign Seal Delivered, had come to me earlier that year, specifically because he'd left Motown at that point. So it's Don Hunter, his name was, Don Powell Hunter. He was the first, and for a while, the only white manager employed by Motown. And Motown's scheme was to employ managers who could manage anybody and everybody really pretty much as a road manager. So they had a team of people, and depending on who was going out and doing a date, whether it was the Four Tops or Gladys Knight or Stevie or whoever, a manager would go with them. Stevie and Don, who were not far apart in age, formed a friendship and a writing partnership. And so it turns out that 
because Stevie had started performing when he was very young, probably eight or so, although his active career is recorded as 1961, but in fact he'd written things like Fingertips before that. But leaving that aside, he was already, when he was a teenager, and as he became a 20-year-old, he was a very, very important part of Motown's artist roster. Not just because of his writing skills or his performing skills, but also because of his ability to produce other artists and to write songs that other artists could record. And many of Stevie's songs were performed and recorded by other Motown artists. And this was obviously a very good revenue source for Motown. Because he was underage, he had to be signed under American and particularly Michigan state law with a court-appointed supervising judge. And that contract was then administered under that supervision until he achieved his majority. In America, that was 21. Don had explained to Stevie that if he wanted to change his status at Motown, he could do it when he was 21, but he couldn't do it before. Stevie had become, since he was probably 15 or so, when he wrote Marsharia Moore, disappointed with the fact that he couldn't make the music that he wanted to make because Barry Gordy and Motown wanted to keep him in the same genre of successful songs, songs that followed a formula that would ensure constant hits and offer constant recording possibilities for other Motown artists. That really meant they wanted Stevie to just carry on doing what he'd been doing. He had a whole different idea of music, and you can hear it in his later albums, but he wasn't free to do that. So he really wanted to know what could he do to achieve that. And obviously one answer was leave Motown. And another solution was rearrange your affairs with Motown so you have more autonomy over your own music and so on. None of this was clear to Stevie and not really that clear to Don Hunter, but Don Hunter was way more educated about the possibilities than Stevie was. And being slightly older already knew that there was room for Stevie to move forward and change, but didn't know anyone who could help him to do that. He'd heard about me, he came and found me in London that year, and then, because he knew when Stevie would be coming to England to perform, arranged for me to meet with Steve and start talking about possibilities. And that meant actually explaining to Stevie exactly what copyright and sound recordings and ownership and which was very very difficult because these were concepts that he had no knowledge of but he was very smart very bright and so he got it and of course we had to do all of that very much undercover because um, Motown weren't thrilled about the idea of somebody talking to their star performer when he was about to reach a point at which he could change direction. 
not happy at all. <laughs> when they did find out, they were very unhappy. Anyway, the idea was to keep that under wraps until we could make a decisive move. But it did take up time and it meant travelling to America and hiding out whilst we, or trying to hide out whilst we had meetings with Stevie and introduced Stevie to the Clive Davises and Arm Ertigans of the world as well. And Lawrence and I were still working with a whole bunch of writers and performers and producers at GEM. We had a lot of other records that were coming up and occasionally showing up in Top of the Pops, which was the English program for recording and demonstrating the top 10 or the top 20 records in any given week. Lawrence had moved into a very nice apartment in one of the better districts of London. And we had three songs in the top 10 at that particular point in time, sometime in 1970. And I had just started conversing, I'd met with and started conversations with Stevie. I thought it would be interesting to bring David and Freddie over to Lawrence's place to watch Top of the Pops. <laughs> so off we went, and David and Freddie had togged up for the occasion, so they were very well turned out. This was 1970, and each of us were carrying, myself included, a handbag, because this was the point at which bags for men appeared, and they weren't a wrist strap with a little bag and you could put all kinds of stuff in it that you didn't want to put in your pocket so you could keep that nice sleek look of a suit without having bulging pockets and put it all in this little pouch, little bag and you could carry it. But when we arrived at Lawrence's place and we walked in and we were all um, carrying these little bags you could see that Lawrence wasn't that comfortable. Freddie realized, okay, this guy is not comfortable and I'm making him uncomfortable. Let's see if I can make him more uncomfortable. So he started coming on to Lawrence. Meanwhile, we are actually watching this program, Top of the Pops. And <laughs> this is the peculiar thing that's happened. We've got a singer who's not signed to us. He's a session singer. He's called Tony Burrows. And because he's a good vocalist with a broad range, he's often used by different producers, including Mickey, and, for example, Jeff Stevens and Peter Reardon, as a lead singer. Now, we've made this recording with Macaulay of Edison Lighthouse, and we are part of this um, Top of the Pops, which is the reason why we're there watching it. But at the same time, Tony Burrows, who was the session singer for that, has to appear on Top of the Pops because he's the only person in the band who can actually sing the song. So he's there singing. And then the next act that comes on is called Brotherhood of Man and the song was called United We Stand. It's another group that actually was produced by Mike Leander, who's another one of our writer-producers. And Tony Burrows is singing lead in the same song, all of which was massively confusing for the audience, interesting for us. And then we get another track that comes on that's also one of ours. 
So we've got three tracks out of the top ten. And Lawrence was really doing it to sort of show off, like, look how successful we are. But then Stevie Wonder comes on. And Lawrence can't resist saying, well, maybe we've got four. And that's because he's thinking, maybe we're going to get Stevie Wonder and we'll have Stevie Wonder as one of our acts, which didn't happen, which probably wasn't going to happen. But in Lawrence's mind, it was something that if it had happened, if we had secured Stevie in some fashion, would have been an enormous coup for Lawrence. And in many ways, I think he was disappointed that it didn't happen. It was one of his big dreams that didn't come true. Whereas for me, it was something that I was doing because I wanted Stevie to become himself, and he did. And it didn't concern me that I didn't get to be his manager, that I didn't get to be his record company. That was always a possibility, but it wasn't the object of the exercise. It's a little bit like what we did with Marianne. I spent a long time trying to bring Marianne away from drugs. It didn't work. And the album worked, but it wasn't released until long, long after. And overall, the most you can do with performers and writers and producers or any talented creative person is make the effort to assist, make the effort to give them space to help with the creative process, but you can't make it happen. And if you do, it generally leads to some form of damage. And that's the the biggest problem for performers, is, if you like, occupational damage. The damage of going out and doing it and eventually not wanting to do it anymore, but not being able to do anything else, not being able to step back, or stepping back because you've lost your audience. All these different things that performers go through and creative people go through and they're not easy but they do tend to come with the territory. Stevie was lucky in the sense he got to make music that he wanted to make with people he wanted to make it with and stayed with Motown who then treated him more fairly. So overall he did get a better arrangement and didn't have to go and work with a whole new set of people and a new record company. It would have been very disruptive. Remember, he was blind and relied very much on Motown folk to work and do work and perform. So in that way, it was successful, but not in the way that Lawrence would have liked it to have been successful. But that um, occasion with Lawrence and David and Rennie was quite funny (laughs) and sort of showed where the humour was in dealing with people who were open to a new idea. One of the nice things about the staff that I later hired for Main Man was that we rarely had anyone, even though we often had straight people, not all our people were wildly gay or transgender or transsexual, All of them were just straight people, but they were still open to a new thing, a new idea, a new way of doing things. They didn't have that shutdown mentality that is not really very good at the creative process. And that was, I think, a big plus. And Freddie did fit very well into that. He fitted into 
whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. You want me to make a jacket with shoulders that are four foot wide? Okay. Not, not maybe what I want to do, but I'm willing to give it a go, give it a shot. You want me to make a Japanese-style thing? I can try that. He was open to doing stuff, which made him very popular with David and a long-term friend. Even as a mime, David was not comfortable with himself. And that is the biggest problem for performers. If you don't have that self-comfort and you're not comfortable, it's a bit like public speaking. If you can't speak comfortably and you don't feel that you're saying something that people want to hear, you won't be able to deliver comfortable speaking. You won't be able to deliver speaking that is level, assured. You won't be able to raise the tone, increase the interest just because it's a skill and people go to learn the skill. And that skill combined with the ability to perform, to play, to sing, as I say, some people have it naturally. People who don't have to be coached and trained and encouraged and believe that they can do this. And once they do believe it, and David came to believe it by probably, as I say, about the mid-70s. But he still needed lots of padding and lots of protection and lots of care and lots of support. By the 1980s, he could literally go on any stage, anywhere, anytime and be Bowie. That's how we got there. So Freddie was a big part of that and deserves some of that credit for sure. When you opened the main man offices in New York, Freddie was part of the team that visited there from the UK. I'm guessing he really enjoyed the main man way of life. Yeah, no, he really enjoyed the entire main man staff and they enjoyed him because he was very easygoing, Freddie. He was very willing, he was very friendly. I think originally we also took um, Daniela to New York the first time around, maybe even the second time around. So, again, David had all this backup, people who he knew, who he relied on, who he trusted, who he'd worked with, who was right there on every show to make sure that he always had the spare costume if he needed it. He always had the costume change when he needed it. He always had someone to do makeup or someone to help him with makeup. And Freddie was there to do a quick fix if he needed a quick fix of anything. So these were all very, like I say, big pluses for his confidence because he knew that there were always people there to do what was necessary. Because David used to get highly nervous when he was performing and even get hysterical in some cases, especially early on. And so that meant having those people there gave him an enormous amount of confidence because he knew that whatever the audience did, his people would be there for him. And like so many others in the main man team, Freddie ended up doing more than just the role that he took on when he first came into David's orbit. Yeah, there's a main man newsletter which sums some of this up, sort of in a promotional way, obviously, because it was intended for the press and the fans. But there is that text that shows what was going on at the time. And this is a melody maker poll so what happened was Melody Maker, which was an English um, music paper, used to do a uh, 
award ceremony based on a poll of their readers to choose best this, best that, best writer, best performer, best singer, and so on. And in 1973 or four, I think it was 1973 actually, the pop poll gave David four of the awards for different um, categories. And those awards were then presented in a ceremony in London. So I said, let's take advantage of this Melody Maker poll to make a statement without sending David to collect his award, because most performers showed up, especially the ones who'd won the sort of top 10 awards, would show up to collect their um, prizes. And in this particular occasion, David and his records and the band had all scored, and they'd scored 17 places in the poll. And so the idea that he should just show up and collect his awards was interesting. What was much more interesting was that he didn't show up and collect his awards, but we rather sent Freddie and Daniela in suitable costumes. Freddie wore his gardenia, um, reminiscent of Billie Holiday, in a white linen suit, and Daniela in a similar outfit, and with her white hair, of course. And the day after the awards, every national paper in London had pictures of Freddie and Daniela collecting the award and not any of the other artists <laughs> collecting their awards. So it did work out. Of course, they featured David prominently as well. But not sending him got him more publicity than he would have got by sending him. And that, that was the kind of thing you could do with Freddie. He was, like I said, very amenable and confident and easy and able to just go in there and do what was needed to be done. We should also mention the importance of Daniela Palmer because she and Freddie were very much a team and a couple and she was an important part of Freddie's creative process. Well, Freddie and Danielle were probably a very early version of what we now see as pansexual or transgender couples because they weren't, strictly speaking, boyfriend-girlfriend. They were, strictly speaking, friends. But they were also, strictly speaking designer and model and designer and inspiration Freddie could try things out on Daniela before he tried them out on anybody else and see if they work so it's one thing to try something out on yourself but as a designer what you really want is a muse you want somebody who can tell you ah that's the wrong color or no that doesn't work but they were also and again this is an interesting thing that they were also a couple that supported each other. She was always very fond of him. He was very fond of her. I never saw Daniela with another boyfriend. And I never saw Freddie directly with another boyfriend, i.e. didn't see Freddie as having a gay relationship, a sexual relationship with David. It was much more of a relationship between two friends that were able to then go out and pick up other possible sexual partners. I don't think that I ever saw the indication that David and Freddie were a sexual item, you see what I mean? Whereas David and other people might have been clearly sexually attracted or attached, but it was evident that Freddie and Daniela had a 
sexual relationship as well as a friendship. So they were boyfriend-girlfriend in that sense. And that really puts Freddie in an interesting place because at the end of the day, he wasn't a gay boy. He was a really bisexual boy. At least that's how I saw him. So Freddie not only designed David fantastic costumes that became iconic, he also provided him with emotional support because those outfits, both on and off stage, provided David with a physical embodiment of the character that he needed to inhabit to overcome his insecurities. I guess that's what enabled him to become this larger-than-life rock star. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think what happened with David was when he was doing mime with Lindsay, for example, he got into a situation that made a lot of sense to him because as a mime, he could literally have a wall between himself and the audience. He loved that wall piece that mime artists often do where you take down the wall or you open the curtain and you emerge. And then you know that as a mime, nobody can really see you. You're hiding inside this mime space, if you like. And David stuck with that for a long time. It took him over 10 years to drop the mime out of his act when he didn't need to be a mime anymore, but he still felt that protective possibility of being the mime. And then what Freddie did was he gave him suits, costumes, clothes, so that even when he was doing an interview or walking down the street or being in a press conference or doing anything that he would normally have been very uncomfortable doing, he got this level of comfort from feeling that he was special because he was wearing a special outfit, special clothes. And so it became very much a factor of, I must be dressed for whatever it is I'm going to do so that people see the clothes, not me. Hiding in your costume is very, very common, much more than people realise. In David's case, it became a huge wall of confidence that he could erect. So that was another reason, frankly, from keeping him from too much media exposure. Because then when he did have, when he was made available, if you like, for media exposure, there was a large amount of desire by the press, by the interviewer, by the photographer, to get close, and David could retreat into this persona of the Lauren Bacall or the Ziggy or the Mr. Fish dress as a way of saying, okay, you can get close, but you can't get to me. You're going to get close to what I'm presenting you with, not to me. He, he stayed in mime, I'd call it mime mode, for a very long time. With people like me, with people like Angela, he was himself. With people like Freddie, he could be himself. With most people, he had to be not himself, but somebody else. It comes from his early childhood as well, where he wasn't allowed to be himself a lot of the time. He had to be somebody else. He had to pretend to be somebody else, not to create issues with, for example, the children at the homes where his father was working or with his own brother or with his own cousins he had to always be in a shell. Freddie gave him a shell to work in that was a very good space for David 
He was one of the great characters, definitely. Tony DeFries recalling the very important relationship between David and designer Freddie Baretti. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.